It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. My guest is Las Vegas artist Lee Lanier, who has a fascinating background as a professional computer animator for Walt Disney Studios and DreamWorks. He's a figurative and narrative painter who lives in Boulder City and currently has a solo show, Bold and Beautiful, at the Sahara West Library in Las Vegas through March 5th. The show features 19 large-scale paintings that breathe new life into historical, literary, and mythological characters. For everything about Lee Lanier, Go to LeeLennerPaints.com and you can follow him on Instagram at LeeLennerPaints. Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. I like your first name, but I'm having trouble getting the second name out. <laughs> That's okay. It happens. It's actually French. It's French. It goes way back, but it's been Americanized. Before talking about your show, tell us a little bit about your background as a professional computer animator. I found that fascinating that you had that whole career before you decided to go into painting. Can you give us a sense of what you were involved in? Sure. I started in film production, actually, in the early 90s in Los Angeles. And then after about four or five years, I got into computer animation, the very the very early days of 3D animation. And I was able to get an entry-level job at Walt Disney doing visual effects. That's where I learned how to use the software. And then after a few years, I went up to PDI, which was Pacific Data Images, which was purchased by DreamWorks, and that was located in Palo Alto, California. And then I've been doing that for a very long time, but it's only been the last six years I decided to pursue painting more seriously. I tried it again, and when I picked it up again, I felt like I made a big improvement. So I thought, okay, this is a good time to actually pursue it professionally. So you went from the technological background to the artistic background. I know there's a combination of the two when you're doing computer animation, but I found it interesting that you were going from an intensely technical side to mm-hmm. a more expressive side, if, if I could term it that way. Yeah, that's, that's a good way to say it. There is art in computer animation, but obviously it's sitting on a computer all day long with software, although some things translate over. And painting is much more physical. I just paint on canvas. I like that difference. I like being able to do something physically after all the time working on the computer. And I still do the freelance work in animation, so I'm still earning part of my living by doing freelance animation work. So just a nice break from that. Were you surprised at how much progress has been made from a technical standpoint with computer animation and just digital, the digital world as such, when you look at earlier works and now you look today, and I was talking with someone the other day about the fact that you, at this point, can't tell whether it's film or digital, specifically of movies or TV shows. Right. It's In terms of visual effects, one VFX artist can fool another in terms of what's been done. It's difficult to see what they have done. And many of the special effects or visual effects are transparent where they've changed something and nobody knows what they've changed. And it's everywhere you look and almost all the media. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing how quickly the computational power has increased over the years and how much cheaper it's gotten. But strangely enough, it still goes back to whether it works or not, it goes back to the basics of are they telling a good story, Is it good, does it have good direction, you know, good acting, and so on. 
Is there a possibility of, and this could apply to both painting and computer animation, but let's stay for now within the computer animation world. Is there a point where manipulation gets so easy that reality is so changed that you have to you have to look outside to see what reality is as opposed to watching some sort of animation because you can create all kinds of worlds? Yeah, it's the only limit is your imagination, which is very free and very democratic. But by the same token, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should necessarily do it. So I think one thing that we suffer from these days is our movies that have huge visual effects and it look they look really realistic, but so over the top, we just can't accept it. And there's no emphasis on story or characters or anything else. So it just becomes very hollow. And so you're using this great technology for something that's not very interesting. That makes sense. But I wonder too, is it a situation, I'll use the term Hollywood in a generic way. Does Hollywood mm-hmm. condition audiences to accept this over-the-top reality and that not just accept it, but that's the new norm as opposed to what you were talking about, which is the importance of storytelling? In other words, do they condition the audience so that you don't want to hear any stories anymore? You just want to see these amazing visual effects? Or is there still the story as a primary attraction for, if not the mass audience, at least part of the mass audience? I think they're definitely feeding us movies that are full of visual effects that are very childish. But I think the average person kind of yearns for characters they can relate to, a story that's interesting. I think it's one reason that Hollywood has been failing and even losing money many years in a row because they don't quite seem to understand that most people don't want to see what they're producing. It sounds like that classic definition of mental illness when you you mm. keep hitting your head against the wall and then people say, well, you really need to try something new and then you keep hitting yourself against the wall. So at some point, do you think that Hollywood, again, in a generic sense, that Hollywood and other film centers will, do you think at some point that they will say, wait a minute, we're not producing what our audience wants? Well, either they will, or they'll just go out of business, or business will migrate to other places. And it's starting to already happen. So it might take people living in the industry and new people coming in. It might take having the industry move to some other center. Uh, Difficult to say, but they're not a particularly good track. You, You can... Think about all the films that have been released in the last couple of years, and at least for myself, there's not too many I really want to see. Um, there's always interesting independent films out there, to be sure, but in terms of the big budget ones, not, not too much. I'm going to do a little plug for my other show, which is called Ira's Everything Bagel, because I have a gentleman on this coming Thursday that will be talking about independent film production and mm-hmm. Shane Stanley. And so... I think that that ties in with what we're talking about before we go further down the line in terms of your show at the Sahara West Library. We'll get there, but I wanted to kind of widen the picture a little bit about your background and your talents. And one of your talents, in addition to this computer animation background, is you were a co-founder of the Damn Short Film Festival, which opens February 10th, goes through the February 14th, and they can get information at damnshortfilm.org. How did you end up founding this short film festival, and it's in Boulder City, which is, again, where you're based as well. How did that come about all those years ago? Well, I was working at PDI DreamWorks up in Palo Alto, working on several feature films, 
And I decided I wanted to make my own short film, uh, animated short film using the computer technology, which was pretty unusual at the time. So I, I did one in my spare time in 1998, and I put it on the film festival circuit. That and some other short films I made in the following years, it took all over the world. And I really enjoyed going to the festivals. My wife was able to attend some of the festivals with me. We saw some really amazing short films, and at the time, they would just disappear. Very early days of the internet, but still, they were difficult to find most of the films you saw in those theaters for those film festivals. So we thought, let's start a film festival. We'll take all the things we liked about other festivals and ignore all the things we hated about other festivals, combine them together, and have our own. And we moved to Boulder City in the early 2000s, and once we moved there, we discovered or realized that this would be a perfect location. We had moved from the Bay Area. We are looking for a small town somewhere in the Southwest. Boulder City happened to fit the bill. And we thought, oh, this would be a great place to do it. So we started it, and we just decided to do it. <laughs> and it's been growing and growing every year. Yes, it's, it started off very humble in the American Legion Hall that we rented with folding chairs and a small handful of films. And now we're in the Boulder Theater uh, in a normal year or virtual in a year like this with films from all over the world. It's amazing, too, because it gives a chance for people to submit. And I, I'm a big fan of short films because my attention span sometimes uh, doesn't permit me to sit through. Certainly not the films that we just talked about earlier where it's all mm. visual effects and no storyline. If there's a storyline, I'm glued. But if there's no storyline, then it, i got to get on to the next thing. So I was going to say the great thing about a short film is it's short, so if you don't like it, it's going to be over really soon. <laughs> and you can go on to the next one at that point. <laughs> what's the shortest, just a curiosity, what's the shortest film that's ever been submitted to the damn short film festival? Well, our limitations are one to 40 minutes. So we've definitely had a few in the one minute range, maybe 50 seconds or something like that. And I think we programmed a few films that have been one to three minutes. Last question about the festival, and then we'll talk about your show. And that is, given technology, again, today and now that it's virtual because of COVID or a variation thereof, are the films initially shot, again, digitally, or are there still some old school people that will film it either on 35 millimeter or 16 millimeter and then bump it up and then digitize it and submit it to the festival? The film is rare. It's Occasionally, you find somebody who just wants to look and they'll pull it out 16 or 35 or eight millimeter, but uh, these days it's pretty much all digital cinematography. And I thought that would be the last question, but it's an interesting topic to me. Are the cameras now that shoot digitally, especially for people who are not major studios, in other words, the people that are submitting films for the festival, are their cameras designed specifically for digital cinematography that are, and let me um, amend that slightly, I know there are cameras that are designed that way, but are there cameras designed for, let us say, semi-professional or not big studio operations? Yeah, there's a whole range of cameras between somebody who's just going on vacation and taking video all the way up to the top-end cameras. There's a whole middle range called prosumer, which is pretty good quality. So you can produce a really nice-looking film with relatively inexpensive equipment or be able to rent it pretty easily or go to your local studio that's in your town, they'll probably have a pretty nice high-end camera uh, you can use for a couple of days or have them shoot it for a couple of days. So it's, it's incredibly accessible. And 
if you're careful, you can shoot a short film on your iPhone and have it look pretty nice. Isn't the secret to that, whether it's the iPhone or, as you say, the middle-range camera or the high-end camera, isn't the secret to all of that lighting? Lighting's really critical. I mean, yeah, lighting and audio quality is really critical. And just understanding the basics of where to place your camera, how to adjust the exposure, figuring out your light color temperature, uh, all those things, all your kind of basic nuts and bolts cynically. If you have understanding of that, your film will be much better regardless of what you're using. And beyond that, if you have a really good script, you have talented actors, that can make up for any kind of minor shortfalls you might have with the technology. Good to know. Well, let's talk about your show. You said you turned to painting when you were still working in the world of computer animation. How did you decide what approach to take to painting? Because your painting, again, I mentioned in the opening that you're a figurative and narrative painter. So how did you decide to approach it from that point of view? Was there something in your background, or you just felt an attraction to that approach? Yeah, I wasn't sure where to start. I had painted previously just off and on every five years. I'd get out a couple canvases and try. Didn't do much with it. But this time when I decided to take it seriously, I wasn't sure where to start. So first I just practiced a lot of figures. I think figures for me are just innately attractive, something about Caption personality, facial expressions. I'm just a little bit obsessed with that. So I started with that, but I tried a lot of different styles. Cranked out a couple hundred paintings first few years. And then I realized that what I enjoy when I look at other paintings was I like the narrative ones. And those are ones that tell a story. So I started getting into more complex narrative pieces. For example, like the ones I have at the show right now. And I came to realize that my film background, animation background, started to tie into it. So my paintings tend to be very dramatic in terms of pose characters telling some kind of old story like mythology or something literary or something historical. And my lighting also is very filmic. So I have dramatic lighting that might be, say, like film noir or say like a Renaissance painting where there's a lot of activity, a lot of motion in the paintings. And these are large-scale paintings, so what, roughly what are the sizes of these paintings? Do my they vary? One is, yeah, my largest painting is 12 by 6 feet, and I have others that are, say, 6 by 5 or 4 by 4. I have a couple of small ones there, but when I say large, it's in that you know, 6 by 5 to 12 by 6 foot range. And when you decided to look at some of the historical characters and mythological characters and literary characters, are you taking some liberties with your approach, or are you more literal? I definitely take liberties for it. I'd like to start with the old story. I have respect for stories that have survived thousands of years. They're just fascinating to me. They're very universal. So I start with a story, uh, often a single character, like a, for a myth, or sometimes multiple characters. I think about how would I represent that in my own kind of unusual way. And my art... It's somewhere in between stylistically, say, Renaissance religious art in terms of a tableau with posed figures and symbols and something like 20th century commercial illustration. Kind of, there's somewhere in between the two. So it's a, a strange combination of Renaissance and modern put together in a fun manner. Was your wife supportive of your decision to leave full-time computer animation and go into the world of painting? 
She was, and I did it in steps. What happened was I decided to leave the full-time CEO work in about 2000, and then I started doing freelance work, and she also changed careers. And we knew together that we needed to make that change to be happier. We used to not want to work 50 hours a week and barely be able to afford an incredibly expensive house with a bad commute. So we're like, we're going to move to a small town, pursue our passions, uh, which we did. And then the pain came a little bit later. Uh, I've tried a couple of different arts here and there on the side for fun. And pain's the one that really stuck. And I think she could tell I was going to pursue it very seriously. And she likes my art, so she appreciates it and has stood by me. I think it's really important, you know, for, for a couple to, even if you don't fully understand what the other person is doing necessarily, or like everything they do, is to try to be supportive. Especially for the long term. Yes, especially for the long term. <laughs> Your show is called Bold and Beautiful. And as I mentioned earlier, there's 19 of these paintings that are on display at Sahara West Library through March the 5th. Is there a chronological approach to how you've placed these paintings, or is there some other way that you've lined these up in terms of left to right? I'm speaking figuratively here, but in other words, is there a sequence of story to each painting, or is it just individual paintings that are hanging on the walls? The paintings are individual, so you can look at them by themselves. So they're not really arranged in a particular order, although I suppose some of the ones that are influenced by religious stories or clustered together. But otherwise, no, it's just whatever seemed to be aesthetic in terms of, you know, big, medium, small, big, medium, small type of arrangement. And there's an app you can use also to get additional information from the paintings as well. Yes, I, because I have a computer animation background and interested in technology as it evolves, I have augmented reality or AR activated for those paintings at the show. You can get an app called Artivive, which is free, and there's an explanation at the show. You can read how to do it. You can point your phone up, run the app. The app recognizes the painting and overlays additional information on top of the painting as you look through the phone or your iPad or wherever you happen to have. And that could be text information about what the symbols are or who the characters are. It could be a making of behind-the-scenes video that's superimposed on top or just other uh, useful information about the painting. So do you input that yourself into the app for the people viewing the paintings, or how does that work using that app? In other words, someone has to upload or input into the app these descriptions, these additional materials. Right. Yeah, Artivive is designed for artists, so as an artist you can get an account and upload to their website and interactively prepare each painting. You upload the reference image of the painting itself, and then you can add additional overlaying layers, which could be video or graphics or whatever you want. Are you a rare bird in this sense? Because I've always felt that artists and technical people are two different worlds. And yet you had that background again in computer animation, so you are comfortable with programming and apps and the digital world. Are most artists like that, or are you the anomaly? I think I'm a bit unusual. I don't think you necessarily find people to do both. I do just enough of everything to be a little dangerous, I guess. So <laughs> I have a very endless curiosity. So if something I want to learn, I'll just go learn it. And, you know, I'm not the best at everything, but I get it done. So um, 
Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think I've always been drawn to art. And then when computer animation became viable, then I went into that because, okay, now I can do art on the computer. That took many years, you know, before that was growing up. It just wasn't there until I was, you know, in my 20s. So I guess I kind of bounced back and forth between the two, technical and the, uh, and the art side. Because most artists I know are nonlinear and mm-hmm. they're very creative, but they don't necessarily grasp technical issues. Yes, they can use an iPhone as I can, but to be able to go to the world of, or to the level of computer animation, that's a whole different thing. Because you, 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 as you said, you have that curiosity, you learn it, but even learning it, it's still a technical approach. It's not necessarily a creative approach or nonlinear approach. You're having to learn certain basic steps and then more sophisticated steps to work computer animation software. Yeah, although I did wait to get into the industry until the software was good enough that an artist with no formal training could use it. So the software itself, you can use it as an artist and not have to necessarily code, for example, or program. Although I can do some of that, and some of that I had to use as part of my job. So you could use it more interactively to, to do what you wanted to do, and it's even easier now. Now, if you have a technical ability, it makes you more valuable, and you can do more, but artists were able to enter the field at that time, especially at that time, because the only place you could use computer animation was, or only people who had potential to be computer animators were computer science majors. And there weren't that many of them that were interested in working in Hollywood. So they actually found artists from all walks of life to to come into the studios and try to learn uh, how to do it. And luckily I was, again, I guess I have a slightly unusual brain. I was able to pick it up pretty quickly, but they had to just get whoever they could at the time. As soon as I hear the word code, I freeze. So I admire the people <laughs> who can do do all that, even if they're they're working in a different world than code, but it's still in the, within that same that same world. When mm-hmm. you are working, and for example, this show that you're having now is this representative of what you're going to continue to do, or are you looking to expand and go into other elements of painting? I think I found a style that suits me and is unusual, so I'm going to stick with that style. Now, I might shrink my paintings or get larger. I might expand what stories I'm covering and refine my technique, but I think what's currently there is the direction I'm going to go. The one bone I'll pick with you is that your website is uh, com, And to me, I'm looking yeah. at that and I'm thinking of, that sounds like Dudley Moore paints. In other words, <laughs> that I'm going to order, I'm going to order cans of paints from Lee as opposed to paintings. Have you ever thought of making it LeeLanierPainting.com or painting? Oh, that's a good idea. I kind of like the the fact it's almost like, I like the verb. Yes, like I'm painting. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I get that. But my yeah. first take on it was, oh, he sells paints. Oh, okay. Well, down the road, down the road, I've I've actually had a couple different names, so maybe at some point. <laughs> When, you, when you're working at, on, at painting, what's the process that you take? Do you think through your approach before you even put a, a bit of a brush to the canvas? Are you thinking of the, the full picture of the painting, or do you just start with a little, little part of the canvas? I do some prep, but not as much as many professional artists. What I do is I think of a story. I think of a character or characters that are interesting to me. Once I lock into something that intrigues me, then I'll 
figure out, well, what model do I, do I want to use for it? And I, any of my new works, the large ones like cast models, put a model call out, talk to people who know models or ones I've worked with in the past, figure out which ones are interested and available, and figure out which one would be great for the character or characters, or which ones would be great for the characters. I hold a casting session, or not a casting session, but I hold a uh, photo shoot with a model, uh, usually in my gallery, just against a blank background with various costumes and props, and then go through the photos, find the one that's going to work the best. I, I never know until I, I'm finished with the shoot what's going to work the best and use the photo as reference for the canvas. And I do a drawing on the canvas. Usually I do a grid kind of transfer where I draw the grid and then draw the character in. Then you rough in the background and then start to paint. All the fine detail, like all the symbolic objects, sometimes the background itself, I will add as I go. And so there's a lot of improv also, but I always start with the most important thing, I think, which is the, the model. The model or the models, in other words, the characters in the painting. Do you think that you do that because it's hard to maintain what you think you want in your head while you're painting and it's easier to set it up as you just described and set that up, get the picture that you want, and then paint using the picture as a reference? It seems to me that's easier on the brain than trying to remember how you want this painting to be. Well, I, one thing is I don't want to fix myself too rigidly. So I think of an idea, and the most I'll do actually before I find the model is to do a quick like I call it bar sketch. It's like a drawing I do on a pad of paper in a bar with like a pen to rough out my idea of the composition. Now, sometimes the model sheet will produce something very similar. Sometimes it won't. Sometimes I'll get a brand new pose. So I don't want to be too rigid. I want to find that pose that I feel really makes it sing for me. So, and in terms of other detail, I have an idea in my head of, okay, this is going to be the background. This will be the other objects in the painting, but I might change my mind. So I want that flexibility to go, as a painting, go, okay, I'm this far in the painting, looks pretty good, but you know what? I don't like that thing in the back I was going to put there. It doesn't work for the composition. It's too crowded or whatever. I'm going to tweak it and change a little bit on the fly. And then, of course, the closer I get to being finished, the more final everything is. But early on, I had that flexibility. That's a great way to do it. It's a mix of the deliberate and the improvisational aspects. Yes, exactly. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Las Vegas artist Lee Lanier, who currently has a solo show, Bold and Beautiful, at the Sahara West Library in Las Vegas through March 5th. The show features 19 large-scale paintings that breathe new life into historical, literary, and mythological characters. For everything about Lee Lanier, go to LeeLanierPaints.com, although he may change it following my suggestion. Lee Lanier Paints, that's a joke, Lee. LeeLanierPaints.com, <laughs> and you can follow him on Instagram at Lee Lanier Paints. Lee, thanks for being on the show. Very glad to be here. Thank you. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Bring us your fantasy.